As we study the, the Gospels, it is almost, especially um, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, it's almost impossible not to read through the Gospels and see all these Old Testament references, old te- ways that the, the New Testament connects back to the Old Testament. And especially I can imagine if you've been a Christian for a, a long a length of time, or particularly even if you were with us for the last three years when we've gone through Isaiah, you can't help but re- as you reread through this, uh, this gospel, as we study through this gospel, we're going to see so many Old Testament themes, Old Testament truths, Old Testament prophecies, uh, even uh, allusions to Old Testament truths found within uh, these, uh, these narratives about Jesus' life. And that, of course, is not surprising because we do learn uh, that Jesus' life basically was pointed to by all the law and the prophets, as he would tell the, the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus. But I want to start today with, the, with, the, with an Old Testament theme of the eternal kingdom of the Son of God, of the Son of David. And if you are, are familiar in uh, the Davidic covenant, it's found for us in 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7, you don't have to turn there, but I just kind of just kind of remind us what the theme was. 2 Samuel 7, David wanted to build a house for the Lord, but God told him, no, he's not going to build the house because of his sin. But that God promises that a son of David, one who would come from him, would, whose kingdom uh, would build a house for him, uh, that was, predict, was the, the son Solomon. But in that Davidic covenant, we see a further promise, a promise that's it's almost, in order to be fulfilled, it had to go beyond Solomon. Uh, told him, this is the words of uh, God to David, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom uh, forever. This Davidic covenant became the, the centerpiece for the hope of Israel. It became connected with the Abrahamic covenant, really became this development of this hope of a, of a coming king, a king who would be of the line of David, whose, uh, whose throne would last forever. Of course, with each successive king, there was always the hope that he would be the messianic king. But as you, we study through the Kings and Chronicles and even the, the books of Samuel, so often the kings of Israel, the kings of uh, Israel united, but also even the, king, the divi- kings of the divided kingdom of the northern kingdom and southern kingdom were imperfect, sinful rulers. Yet hope remained as God would then send prophets to foretell of his coming, continue to, uh, to emphasize the, this theme of the eternal kingdom of the son of David. We are reminded of passages like Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, which we looked at a while ago, promising about this child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. Of course, uh, verse 7, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace, or on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. And so, again, we see this theme of the eternal reign of a king, coming king, who would be a descendant of David. But the nation, of course, grew from bad to worse as eventually Israel was taken into captivity shortly after uh, Isaiah was written. The city was destroyed, was razed, and the temple completely burned. And the people of God, the people of Israel, perhaps wondered, what use is a king with no people and no land? But the word of God is sure. Though taken into captivity, God reiterated his promises. 
again through his prophets, through his prophet Daniel. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, we read this after the great, uh, after uh, this, explaining the vision. And it says, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. That kingdom will not be left forever. Other people. It will crush, put an end to all these kingdoms. It will itself endure forever. And then a passage that we read last week as uh, our call to worship, uh, the prophecy of the one coming like a son of man. Came with the ancient days, was presented before him. And to verse 14, to him was given dominion, glory, and kingdom, that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Daniel's prophecy reveals that the messianic king who would reign forever would be one who is like a son of man. That is, he would be a human being. And yet, although he is human, he will somehow reign forever. The nation of Israel would have to wait for another 500 years. And after all the expectation and waiting, when the king finally came, when Jesus was born, he came in such a way that no one expected it. Though God's word had made clear through his promise to David, through the promises through the prophets, when he arrived, he arrived in a way that all of Israel, all the world, did not expect. But he came in a way that the power of God would be magnified. And with that, we arrive at our text this morning, the announcement of the birth of Jesus to Mary. It's hard to preach texts like this, to tell you the truth, because it's a familiar text to all of us. We kind of already know what it says, what, God, what the angel is going to say to Mary. We already know the significance of the child that's born to, going to be born to her. We, we already know that this is a significant event. But, every, but if we could somehow provide for us the setting, everything in this text, if we were living in the days of Jesus, everything in this passage tells us, screams at us, that this is actually an insignificant moment an insignificant time, an insignificant place. And what is taking place here is not something that is some, to us like, oh, that's, that's, that could happen. But it's something that takes place that to the average Israelite in the land was, that is impossible. That's not going to happen. That can't happen. That is not fit with our understanding of the king who is coming. But it's all to show the power of God to save sinners. In Luke's introduction, he had stated his, uh, his intention to compile an account of the things that had been fulfilled, accomplished among us, so that whoever reads his, his gospel would come to understand the exact truth about the things they have learned. This, even this morning, as we come again to God's word, to Luke's gospel, this passage will will give us a further assurance of the things that we have already known and believe about Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God and the Son of Man, that he is the one who was sent by God and able to die for our sins. And may, if you have been ever felt uncertain about that or unsure about that, Luke writes this for you to give you that assurance. 
Last week we saw how he began, uh, how Luke began with the angel Gabriel's announcement to the, uh, to the, uh, of the birth of John the Baptist to his father Zacharias. This week we see the angel Gabriel again making another announcement to another individual. And as we look at this story, we're going to find basically three unexpected things. I almost wanted to put impossible things, but technically that's not true because they were actually took place, so they were possible. But three unexpected, if not impossible, things in Gabriel's word to Mary that accentuate, accent, highlight the power of God in fulfilling his plan of salvation. That in this text we see that God does brings about his plan of salvation in such unexpected, if not impossible, ways. So first point number one, uh, as we look at this story, we're going to see the unexpected circumstances, the unexpected circumstances, or unexpected setting even. What we find in the following verse is not the expected setting for the birth of a king, except for the appearance of an angel, though everything speaks of the humble entrance the humble beginnings of this coming king. Verse 26 to 27, we read this. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. The sixth month here refers to the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, which we had just seen in the previous section. Once again, the angel Gabriel is sent from God, as he was to Zacharias in the preceding text. And again, he's delivering a special message on God's behalf. He's not delivering his own message. He's speaking God's message. And so here he is, the the angel, probably one of the archangels who stands in the presence of God, is sent to earth. And you think he has this announcement to be made upon earth. Where does he go? Does he go to the capital of Israel to make his announcement known? Does he go to Jerusalem? No. Does he go to the capital of the whole empire, the known world at that time, the Roman Empire, that is Rome? No. But he goes, his angel goes and is sent to a city, even by our terms today, it's not really a city, it's more of a little town, a town in Galilee, called Nazareth. Nazareth is, a, is an isolated city in the province of Galilee. For you and me today, Nazareth of Galilee, of course, we read in this, we say, oh, that's a significant place. That's where Jesus was born. That's, if I was going to go to Israel, I would go visit Nazareth. It's a highlight. We read so much significance, but again, went to the average listener of the story when they heard Nazareth of Galilee it screamed of insignificance. It has as much importance as if Lebanon, Kansas. Have you heard of Lebanon, Kansas? Yeah, me neither. Until uh, this week when I was Googling uh, what's the uh, center of the, you know, geographical, the geographical center of the contiguous 48 states in the United States. It's near a city called, a town of 218 people called Lebanon, Kansas. Okay. Nothing important happens there, trust me. <laughs> it's not even near any major city. But I just thought, well, that's like Nazareth of Galilee, Lebanon, Kansas. First of all, the province of Galilee was a province that nobody wanted to go to. It was like a state that everybody looked down upon. It's like, I was going to name a state, but I hate to offend anybody. But you know, not California. 
But everywhere else in the world, in country, they, they looked down upon California. But anyways, there's that country. It's, Galilee was looked down upon by Israelites because why? Because Galilee was a, was a region, a province that actually had a lot of mixed people. There was not just Jews there, even though it was part of the Palestine or the land of Canaan. But it was, there was a lot of Jews and Gentiles. And oftentimes they mixed together, almost like Samaria was. What's more, Galilee was, was uh, and because of that, there's the influence of uh, outside peoples. Galilee really was uh, like, the, like a, a country. It was like a hick province. They even had a, their own accent. Now, that's for Nazareth of Galilee. So in this insignificant province of, uh, of, of Canaan or Israel, there is this little town called Nazareth. An ins- insignificant town in an insignificant province. Uh, geographically, it was surrounded. It was like a, it was a valley in the mountain range. So it was essentially isolated, pretty well isolated, even though there was near some trade routes. But the trade routes didn't go through the town, but it was kind of at a high elevation. It was so, such an isolated place, insignificant place, that even the Galileans thought very little of Nazareth. All of Jesus' disciples, uh, except for one, were were from Galilee. One of them was Philip, or Nathaniel. And when Philip told Nathaniel that they had found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, Nathaniel replied in John 1:46, "Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Can you imagine? Like even the Galileans looked down upon Nazareth. Does any prophets come from there? As there was what people thought. Has anything significant come from Nazareth?" Has anything significant come from Lebanon, Kansas? I don't think so. Why would the coming king come from Nazareth of Galilee? No, this is, uh, but yet this is where Gabriel was sent. But even more unexpected, uh, the location is the person to whom Gabriel was sent. He was sent to a virgin, according to our text. Luke emphasizes this, in fact, by mentioning it twice in, our, in verse 27. That is, she's a virgin. She's not had sexual relations with a man. Historians believe that she was somewhere between the ages of 12 and 14. A middle schooler, junior higher. Outside of children, a virgin maiden is among the lowest of the societal status in those days. Yet the angel appears to her. We learn that she is engaged She's engaged to a man named Joseph, significantly of the house of David. And even this is kind of interesting. What is a descendant of David doing in Galilee? Is this where the tribe of David is? Is this where the sons of Jesse come from? No, they come from Bethlehem. And so, for some reason, this descendant of David is living in Nazareth of Galilee, insignificant Hicktown, insignificant province. And God appears to his wife, his, well, his betrothed. The betrothal then was a legally binding relationship. It's, it's a little stronger than our engagement today, where if they were to break off the engagement, uh, their betrothal, it would be required divorce. It's a legal, it was a legal uh, con- uh, relationship. They were practically married except for the fact that they had not consummated the marriage. They didn't have the marriage wedding feast and then the consummation of the marriage. But they were already, at this time, would have been considered husband and wife. 
So, to this young insignificant girl in an insignificant town, in an insignificant province, in an insignificant nation, by the way, in the great Roman Empire, Angel Gabriel appears. And we see in verse 28 and 29 what he says to this in this insignificant setting, this unexpected setting. 28 and 29. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. Here the angel calls her, addresses her as favored one. It's very unfortunate uh, that this term has led to, the, <clears throat> to an, an aberration of many people's understanding of Mary. The Roman Catholic Church has taken this and it's taught that uh, of this doctrine of the immaculate conception. That's not talking about the conception of Jesus, but it speaks of the conception of Mary, that they believe that because uh, of her, this phrase that she was somehow conceived as a sinless child, that she had no sin. Of course, this would lead to many other aberrations of doctrines of Mary where she would then be uh, someone whom people would pray to because she was now so full of grace, as, uh, as the, the Latin Vulgate translated, that people spoke to her to speak to Jesus on our behalf. She became an intermediary uh, for people's prayers. People venerated her, worshipped her. But is this what it's, this phrase means, favored one? Though translated uh, uh, by the, in the Latin, the take from the Latin Vulgate into the, the early English translation as full of grace, preserved in the Hail Mary. Those of you that have Catholic, Roman Catholic backgrounds, you know the, the Hail Mary prayer. Hail Mary, full of grace. But is Gabriel praising Mary for being full of grace? Is, that what she, is, she, is, this what she, is this who she is? It's not, of course. Rather, this phrase uh, does not imply that she is a dispenser of grace, but that she is one who has received much grace. This verb is in the passive tense, when it's in, or passive mood, um, uh, passive voice. Uh, I wrote tense here a minute. So, but, and that means that she is one who is not bestowing favor, but she's one who receives, has received favor from another. She's received favor from God. The, the angel says so much as much as the Lord is with you. Gabriel ge- greets Mary as one who has been bestowed favor by the Lord. And this favor is related with the fact that the Lord is with her. In fact, the context confirms in the next verse, verse 30, which we'll read in a little bit, she has found favor with God. She discovered favor with God. She, it's not that she had favor alone in her innately. She found it with God. God alone gives grace in Christ. So this young insignificant girl in an insignificant town, in an insignificant province, an insignificant nation, in the great Roman Empire, the angel, angel Gabriel addresses her as if she is somehow a woman, an individual of immense significance. How is she addressed as one who has been blessed mightily by the grace of God? And Mary was perplexed by this greeting. The answer comes, of course, uh, following this unexpected circumstances, the un- uh, Gabriel's answer to her. 
And Gabriel's answer to her is that her significance comes because of God's blessing of the unexpected son. There's an unexpected son that we see in verse 30 to 34, the the announcement, of course, of Jesus' birth. The angel said to her, verse 30, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will continue in your, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. After easing her fears, the angel delivers God's message to her. It's, again, a prophetic revelation of what God would bring to pass in her life. He begins in verse 31 with the announcement that she would have a son. This alone probably wouldn't have been surprising, considering that she's a virgin that's betrothed to a man. She's going to be married within the year. And so to have you promise a son, that's probably something quite realistic. But even in this promise, this promise of a virgin who would have a son is strikingly familiar. There's a strong allusion here to a prophecy that would be fulfilled, a prophecy that was fulfilled and was, that we, were in, we studied back in Isaiah. Isaiah 7.14, written 700 years before Christ, where God wrote to, uh, through the prophet Isaiah, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. He saw that King Ahaz, remember? Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. See, the virgin birth of Jesus, this announcement to Mary, this virgin, Luke is making clear that this is a, 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 alluding to the fulfillment of this prophecy. This is the Messiah. God has shown favor to her in that she would conceive and bear a son, and he would be the fulfillment of God's promises. She's even told the name of her son. She would name him Jesus. Now, Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua. So it was a common enough enough name. But the meaning of the name is that the Lord saves. In fact, <clears throat> we're told, we read in the parallel to this in Matthew 1, which we read in our call to worship, that when an angel also appeared to Joseph, uh, he elaborated to Joseph that she will bear a son, you should call his name Jesus. For he, and here's the reason why his name is Jesus, he will save his people from their sins. If the angel had stopped his message here in verse 31, we would have simply gathered he's going to have a son named Jesus. Nothing too special about that. But having announced the birth of her son, Gabriel moves in verse 32 to 33 of the significance of her son. And this, we find this, here's the significance of this son that the Virgin Mary will conceive. He will be great. And we call the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Gabriel's statements make it crystal clear that this son whom she would bear would be the messianic king. The one that all the prophets spoke to. The one that God promised to David the one that God promised through Isaiah, the one that God promised through all the other prophets, including ending with Daniel as well. And we learn five specific things about who this Jesus will be, that he is special, he is unique, he is unexpected because he will be great. Jesus will be great, verse 32. He'll be of a, basically, this speaks of his rank, his dignity. 
Um, when, when Gabriel announced Zach, the birth of John the Baptist to Zacharias, he had mentioned then that John would be great in the sight of the Lord. Here, Jesus would be not just great in the sight of the Lord, he would be the greatest of the highest rank and dignity in the, before the Lord. This, he will be the manifestation of all that is great. Secondly, this child will be the son of the Most High. This is why he'll be a great, great. He'll be the son of the Most High. The Most High is an Old Testament reference for God, uh, the first time being in Genesis 14, 18. Use the Melchizedek, who was a priest of God Most High. And then remember in John the, the Baptist in chapter, uh, and later in, uh, regarding John the Baptist in verse 76 of Luke chapter 1, he'll be called the prophet of the Most High. But Jesus is not just the priest of the God Most High, nor is he the, only the prophet of the God Most High. Jesus is the Son of God the Most High. In Hebrew culture, a son was considered to have the same nature as a father. And thus, to be called the Son of the Most High meant that he would be equal to God. He himself would be Most High. Thirdly, we're told about Jesus that he would be the ruler on the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Or, excuse me, he will, God will give him the throne of his father David. Jesus would be the fulfillment of the messianic king promised to David in that Davidic covenant. Fourthly, he will be a ruler over the house of Jacob forever. Here, uh, the house of Jacob here refers to the nation of Israel. And so, we understand that Jesus is going to be the fulfillment of all the promises to the nation Israel. He will reign as Israel's king. Yes, he is the king of kings, but he will particularly be also the fulfillment of all the promises to the, for the, of a ruler over the nation of Israel. Fifthly, we are told that he will be a ruler of a kingdom that will have no end. It will endure forever. His kingdom will have no end. It will endure forever. It recalls again our, our prophecies that we saw earlier. So as Mary heard Gabriel's words, she would have undoubtedly understood the significance of it. You're telling me I'm going to have a son. Okay, that's, that's cool. I can get that. But I'm going to have the son who is going to be the son of the most high. The son of Mary is going to be the son of the most high. And he's going to be the messianic king. Wow. I know we have a few sisters here expecting children. You know, I'm sure you, you're, uh, you're excited about your child. And you're probably already thinking about, well, what's my child going to become? What is he or she going to do in life? Is, oh, well, I have all sorts of thousand hopes. I'm going to discover a cure for, you know, all the diseases of the world. It's going to, you know, do something great. It's going to be the, you know, all, you know, all sorts of things, whatever your hopes are. But not, I don't think anyone ever thinks, well, my child's going to be the son of the most high. That is a completely unexpected action. That's an impossible thing. And that's what God essentially tells Mary. Your son is going to be the son of the most high. This is impossible. He will be God's son. He will be Emmanuel. He will be God with us. He will be the fulfillment of all the promises, every expectation, all hope of Israel from Abraham to this day. God chose Mary to bestow the favor of bearing the son of God who would save his people from their sins. Surely, certainly, she was 
most favored by God. And Mary's response to this, her first and only question to Gabriel reveals her thoughts. Verse 34, Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? It's amazing, a 12 to 14-year-old girl in the presence of an angel already probably just completely in fear and trembling. But I love her, 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 her uh, just her, her demeanor, her, her strength of, of character. And just as she asks of, of, the, of this angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? And these are not words of disbelief. Zacharias' question expressed unbelief, you remember. But Mary's question, in contrast, expresses belief. She doesn't ask for a sign, as Zacharias did. Rather, what Mary asked for is an explanation. She understands, believes that Gabriel's announcement. And literally she says, how will this be? How will this be since I do not know a man? She's, how will this child come about? She wants to know. She doesn't, she, her question is not whether it will come about, but how will it come about? How does a virgin conceive and give birth to be the son of the Most High? And this leads us to the third and final uh, unexpected part of the story, and that's the unexpected conception. In verse 35 to 38, the angel answered and said to her, verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Gabriel answers her question by telling her that her conception, the child conceived in her, will be accomplished by divine action. And divine action that involves both the Holy Spirit as well as God the Father. That's the Most High. It's kind of neat little observation that the Trinity is mentioned here in this verse. The Holy Spirit, God the Father, the Most High, as well as the child, the Son of God. But we may look at this passage and try to understand how does, how does God cause a virgin to conceive without a sexual relationships or relation with a, a man? We read in Matthew 1 that he kept her a virgin until, uh, Joseph kept her a virgin until the Son of God was born. Jesus was born. The closest thing we can understand is that, is this from this word overshadow. The most power, the most high, will overshadow you. Overshadow is used in the other, in other places in the gospel. Matthew, Matthew seventeen five, Mark nine seven, Luke nine thirty four. All of the basically the overshadowing of the disciples by the glory cloud of God, when uh, uh, when uh, when Jesus was on the uh, mount praying. And uh, God appeared before them. And so this idea of overshadowing carries this idea of, a, of the presence of God, the divine presence. So what this says to us essentially is this, that the power of God the, in the presence of God will be somehow manifest in our life. God will be with you. That's the blessing. That's how you're going to conceive because God is present in it. When God is present in it, the impossible takes place. God's power will be, will be involved in the conception of this child. We do not know the specifics. We don't exactly know the, the scientific method in which this is going to happen. But I bet God could explain it if he wanted to, okay? But that's not what we're told. We're simply told that God is in it. God's presence is here. And because of God's presence, his power, that's how the holy child shall be born. And this child, Mary's child, will be God's child, the son of God. 
That's why he'll be called the son of God. It's not because he's born to Mary. It's because God, the Spirit, and God the Father are going to be involved to affect the unique nature of this child. We now have the explanation. This is why he is the son of God and the son of the Most High. Because he will be conceived because of the, by the presence of the Holy Spirit and the power of God. This, of course, to us in our modern ears is something that is impossible. In our naturalistic worldview, materialistic worldview, uh, we do not believe that things like this take place. Uh, we, we do not believe in them. Uh, many, even many professing Christians would even deny the, the miracles such as these. But yet, this is what God's word says. Jesus is born of a virgin apart from Joseph by the very, because of the power of God in her, in his work in her through the Holy Spirit. And but yet because of this, Jesus was not only the son of Mary, human, but he was also the son of God. We know this doctrine, the doctrine of God's uh, of Jesus' humanity and deity, 100% man, 100% God. He had to be both. He couldn't be one or the other. He had to be a man in order to die as a representative of mankind. He had to be a man in order to be fulfilled the, 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 the promises of being a descendant of David who would sit on David's throne. He had to be fully God in order to be a sinless sacrifice, in order to pay the infinite penalty that God demands from sinners. He had to be fully divine in order to fulfill the promise of a king who would reign forever. So Mary's conception of Jesus is nothing short of a divine miracle. Of course, hers is not the only unexpected conception. The angel tells her about the conception of a child for, for, to Zacharias and Elizabeth in verse 36 and 37. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible to God. Uh, we've already looked at the impossible nature, the unexpected birth of uh, a conception of Elizabeth in her old age, beyond her childbearing years. But, that's, but she is given as a sign to Mary of how this, that this would all take place. And then we hear those encouraging words, the theme of our passage, for nothing will be impossible with God. This phrase is reminiscent of Genesis 18, 14, by the way, uh, when God appeared to Sarah and said, is there anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Nothing is too difficult for God. Nothing is impossible with God. Even elderly women beyond their years like Elizabeth and like Sarah can be given a child, a son, by the power of God. And yes, even young virgin women who have never known a man can conceive and bear a child because of the power of God. Nothing will be impossible with God. And that's the main point. Of course, when this phrase, nothing will be impossible with God, it's uh, hopefully... A lot of times we, people use it and they'll, they'll kind of take it like a, a, a maybe they'll, they'll, ter, they'll kind of take it as almost like a, 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 
an absolute promise, an unlimited promise that if God is with me, then there's nothing that I can't do because nothing will be impossible with God and God's with me, so then I can do the impossible. That's not the point of this phrase. Rather, really this phrase is saying that there's nothing that will prevent God from fulfilling his promises and plan of salvation. There's nothing too difficult for him to do. He is the almighty creator. He can accomplish, he has the power to accomplish and fulfill all his promises. He spoke the world into existence in six literal days. He made all life out of nothing. Yes, he can create a life in the womb of a virgin. He does so to manifest and display his power so that the Son of God may enter this world. We see Mary's response in verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Mary responds with faith. She accepted the words of the Lord through the angel. She submitted herself to God's word. And she did so knowing the potential shame and scorn that she would receive as a pregnant woman prior to the consummation of her marriage. Elizabeth's pregnancy would remove her disgrace, but Mary's pregnancy would lead to disgrace. Remember Joseph, we read in the very beginning of our time, was going to divorce her secretly because she was found to be a child. But yet, Mary, Joseph and and Mary here, demonstrate faith in God, trust in God's word, submission to God's word. And so she says to the Lord, I am the bond slave of the Lord. May it be done according to, to me, according to your word. Essentially, she says, To God, thy will be done. She sets the example for her own son to one day make a similar choice and go to the cross for the sins of the world where he would pray, yet not my will, but thy will be done. We conclude then just reminding ourselves as we study through Luke how we might apply these texts to our lives. It tells us a lot. It reveals so there are many ways we can apply this text. There's so many truths we learn. But three things just kind of highlight. We mentioned this last week. We learn a lot about the character of God. And these are not the only ways we apply. There's others. But just these three, we're going to focus. Character of God that we might learn about God as well as the character of Jesus to appreciate. We'll see examples in the characters that we find in the various texts. And then we'll learn about attitudes that we can develop or avoid. And so in our text today, I just want to emphasize some characters that we learn about God. First of all, we learn about the character of God, that is his power. That is, God is able to fulfill his promises. He is the God of the impossible. He works and acts in unexpected things. God, everything about the announcement and birth of Jesus was to set for us something that is unexpected is going to take place so that when it happens, no one would say, oh, some man figured that out, but that God figured it out, that God's power brought it out. Uh, we also learn about uh, the example, of, particularly of Mary in this text. Mary is an example to those who serve God. She responds to God's promises, God's word. She responds with submissive faith. 
She recognizes that she is a bond slave, a servant of God. She says, may it be done according to your word. And she's an example to all of us. You know, when was the last time we said to the Lord in our prayers or when we read God's word and we read something that was difficult and we said, I'm your bondservant, Lord. May it be done according to your word. Jesus would teach, make a similar calling of his disciples when he challenged them to, to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. Mary, even before Jesus starts teaching that, in essence, does that. She denies herself, and she willingly counts the cost to follow God and follows and obeys his plans for her life. That's Mary, and she's an example to all of us. And then lastly, we learn about the character of Jesus. Again, we learn about the character of Jesus in every single text. We learn about the character of Jesus, that is, he is the son of man as well as the son of God, and that he is the God-man, and that is why he is able to die in place of sinners. We've looked at that many times in many ways. And so hopefully this encourages you, may it confirm in you what you believe about, give you assurance about what you believe about Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word and thank you for these truths. May you cause us to, uh, <clears throat> to grow in our appreciation of who you are, that you are certainly the God of the impossible. And Lord, you can do all things and everything you promise, you will bring to pass. Just as you fulfilled your plan of salvation, you fulfill your, prom- your plans and purposes in each of our lives. You did so in Mary's life. You did through- so in Zacharias' life. And you do so in the life of Jesus and you do so in our lives. Father, we, we put our hope and trust in you. And Father, we thank you for the example of Mary. We thank you for her humble submission and faith in you. And God, help us to be similar. Help us to walk in a similar faith, to submit ourselves to your will for our lives. May your, your purposes and your will, and even when it's unexpected, even when it's things that we don't really want, May we submit ourselves to your perfect plan and know that, God, you will accomplish your good, your glory in every, every aspect of our lives. And, Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the God man, the Son of Mary, who is the Son of the Most High, you, who can come, who is able to come and die in place of us, die for our sins. Thank you, Father, for the gift of your son. We praise you. We worship you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.